Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. At daylight saw the enemy's combined fleet from east to east-southeast, bore away, made the signal for order of sailing and to prepare for battle, the enemy with their heads to the southward. At seven, the enemy wearing in succession. May the great God whom I worship grant to my country and for the benefit of Europe in general a great and glorious victory, and may no misconduct in anyone tarnish it, and may humanity after victory be the predominant feature in the British fleet. For myself individually, I commit my life to him who made me, and may his blessing light upon my endeavours for serving my country faithfully. To him I resign myself, and the just cause which is entrusted to me to defend. Amen. 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 So, Tom, that was the last diary entry by Horatio Nelson on the morning of Monday, the 21st of October, 1805. Very stirring words, I have to say. And we have been talking about the build-up to the Battle of Trafalgar, the long decades of maritime history, the development of the Royal Navy, the financial and political underpinnings, the extraordinary manoeuvrings to and fro across the Atlantic as Nelson chases Villeneuve, his French antagonist, and now here we are, the moment of decision. The dawn is coming, and I know you're poised to take us through, blow by blow, the narrative. Yes. So it's just before dawn on the 21st of October, 1805, about quarter to six in the morning, and the lookouts on the masts of the British fleet spy the enemy. They're about 12 miles downwind from the British fleet. And it's confirmation that the French and Spanish have not withdrawn, have not retreated, and therefore there is an opportunity for battle. So the British are about 22 miles off Cape Trafalgar, which lies between Cadiz and Gibraltar, Taraf al-Ghar, so Arabic, the point of the cave. It's a clear day. The previous day had been wet, had been cloudy, very poor visibility, but on the 21st of October, it's about 21 degrees, so pretty unseasonably warm. But just the faint hint of a swell, so possibility of a, a storm coming later in due course. But the day itself, 21st of October, looks a good day to be fighting a sea battle. The British have 26 ships, 
The French and Spanish between them have 33 ships. The French and Spanish ships have been kind of mixed up so that there's no prospect of either one national squadron sailing off and abandoning the other. The French flagship is the Boussantour, uh, named after the, um, the gilded barge of the Doge in Venice. That is where Villeneuve is. It's not in absolutely tip-top shape because it had just recently been struck by lightning, which is <laughs> further added yeah. to Villeneuve's kind of <laughs> slight mood of despondency. And Villeneuve is in the centre of the line as it's sailing down towards Gibraltar. He has with him a Spanish rear admiral, Baltasar de Cisneros, and he is in command of the Santissima Trinidad, so the most sacred trinity the biggest ship in the world. And it's the biggest ship in the world. It's the only one with four decks of guns. Yeah. So an absolute trophy. British are absolutely itching to get their hands on it. The uh, The Vanguard is commanded by another Spanish admiral, Ignacio de Alva, and he's on a ship called the Santa Ana. And the rear guard is commanded by a Frenchman, Pierre Dumanois, in the, on, in, he is on board a ship called the Formidable. The Spanish admiral, the, so the overall commander, Frederico Gravina. He is on a ship called the Principe de Asturias, and he is commanding what uh, Villeneuve calls the Squadron of Observation, which is basically a kind of reserve. So this is yeah. this is the plan that Villeneuve suspects what Nelson is going to do, and so he doesn't know where Nelson will be targeting his attack. And so his plan is that he's going to have you know this tactical reserve to kind of come up wherever it's needed. So that's the plan. Meanwhile, of course, Nelson has his plans. He's he has told. All the captains of the ship of the fleet exactly what he's going to do. Namely, he's going to form yeah. two prongs. One of them is going to be led by himself on victory. The other one is going to be led by Admiral Collingwood, Nelson's old friend, the man that he most respects and admires among his colleagues. And he is going to be on a ship called the Royal Sovereign. So essentially, Nelson and Collingwood are the tip of the spear. They are. Yeah in the position of maximum danger. And there's some nervousness about this on the part of Collingwood and, uh, and many of his colleagues, and they've tried to persuade Nelson that perhaps victory should hang back or that he should get on another ship. And Nelson, of course, absolutely scorns that because it's yeah. you know the whole mystique of Nelson's charisma is that he shares the dangers of his men. And in fact, as an officer, he is obliged to run more risks than his men. Because he is well, he standing stands. on the quarter deck, which is right. you know, and all, as all officers do, they have to stand there. They can't cower. They can't duck. It requires absolutely phenomenal qualities of courage. And Nelson, just to be, I mean, by the time he does get on deck, we can maybe just leap ahead for a second. You're talking about the courage. He is wearing his dark blue coat. I mean, you can see what Nelson wore in the National Maritime Museum. Yeah, it's still, um, with they've still little, got it, haven't yeah. they? But he's wearing his dark blue coat, and he's got gilt buttons, thirty six gilt buttons and gold epaulets and stars adorned on the epaulets. So he is absolutely visible. You know, if you're a Frenchman or a Spaniard, you will see Nelson literally glinting because of the stars and whatnot, surrounded by men who are clearly not officers or, or well, you know, the the mass of the men on the on the ship. So Nelson is a target. I mean that's really important. He is a very, very visible target. Absolutely. And one of the things that makes what he's doing incredibly dangerous is that uh, if you imagine two ships parallel to each other, firing guns at each other, the ribs of the ship serve as a kind of armor. But if you imagine them shooting at the, um, at the stern or the rear, that's yeah. vulnerable. And you know, if you fire cannonballs, say, through, through the prow, it can go straight through the ship. It's called raking. 
Yeah. So as Nelson on victory and Collingwood on the Royal Sovereign approach the French and Spanish line, they will be raked and they will not have an opportunity to fire back because their cannon will obviously not be pointing at the, at, at, yes. at the enemy line. So it requires unbelievable reserves of courage to do that. But that is what, that's Nelson's plan. Uh, and at 6.10 in the morning, he signals to the fleet, form order of sailing in two columns. So victory at the head. Yeah. Royal Sovereign at the head of the second column. Yeah. 6.22, another signal, prepare for battle. And so they start to move forward. 6.40, a French frigate signals to the the Boussentour, to Villeneuve on the, the French flagship. The enemy is in sight to windward. And as the British fleet slowly crosses over the horizon, Villeneuve is absolutely appalled to realize how many British ships there are. There are far more than he had, he had calculated. Yeah. But he knows that, you know, he knows that if he retreats now, he's doomed. French honor will be lost. So he, he is determined to, um, to stand and fight. And so he kind of, res- he, he uh, gives orders for his fleet to reverse direction, to turn northwards, to face the British, but they're unpracticed. And this mm. maneuver generates the first Franco-Spanish mistake, which is that the tactical reserve under the command of Gravina, the Spanish admiral, gets jumbled up with all the other yeah. ships. And so it loses its its coherence and kind of gaps in the line start opening up. Well, if you ever look at a plan of the battle, Tom, the, the French and Spanish, the combined fleet is meant to be a sort of a line, but it's actually quite raggedy and it's yeah. more of a kind of crescent, isn't it? What this means is that Gravina's reverse force, rather than kind of entering as a solid unit, is just kind of entering pell-mell. And in the long run, it will kind of, you know, each one, it'd be like, you know, entering a, a, a meat grinder or something. So it, it's, things are not looking good for the, for, for, for the Spanish feet and the French feet right from the beginning. The thing that makes the whole onset of the battle kind of unbelievable is that there's enough wind for the British to advance, but not enough for it to to be anything more than a kind of walking pace. The British fleet is advancing kind of two, three miles an hour. Yeah. So, so if it's the film, if it's the fi- if you're making the film at the Battle of Trafalgar, I mean, the thing is that they see each other, they start to, you know, everyone's nervous, everybody's getting ready, but hours will pass. Hours, with them Getting yes. closer and closer. It's about six hours, I think, with them moving very, very slowly together. And the tension on board, I mean, the descriptions in the various books. So, for example, in I mentioned earlier, what I think is one of the most extraordinary history books that I've probably ever reviewed, which is John Sugden's, the second volume of his Life of Nelson, which is just so incredibly detailed. And I know you read a book on, is it by Tim Clayton? Is it Tim Clayton, somebody like that? About yeah, Trafalgar? Tim Clayton and Phil Craig, a really good, good account of the battle. These amazing accounts of the Battle of Trafalgar, and what makes them so powerful is that sense of the tension building and building and building hour after hour. So they, they clear the decks, don't they, on the British ships. What you do is when you're getting ready for, for action, you take all the furniture you away. You take your hammocks down. The hammocks down. You and you put the them up to boats. kind of serve yeah. as padding uh, to kind of yeah. reinforce the, the sides of the deck. The men strip to the waist. They sort of tie headband, headbands or bandages around their heads so that it will keep the sweat out and protect their eyes. They do all that. But then there's still an awful lot of waiting. And actually on the British ships, so we started this whole epic and I read that Heart of Oak. I mean, that's one of the songs that they sing. The band strikes yeah, up. The bands are playing. The bands are playing. They sing Rule Britannia. They sing God Save the King. At one point they dance the hornpipe. 
on board. Well, also, Dominic, for breakfast, they've been given wine. They have wine and meat. Yeah. Yeah. Wine unusually. On Villeneuve's ship. So the British are sort of singing Royal Britannia and dancing. On Villeneuve's ship, I was very pleased to read that he parades the Imperial Eagle. That's right. It's been given sent by by Napoleon. And the uh, his his officers swear oaths of loyalty. They renew their oaths of loyalty to the Emperor. So, you know, it's the perfect you know, a British a sort of Hogarth figure couldn't make yep. this up. You know, the contrast between the sort of the high spirits of the British and the French swearing loyalty to an absolutist ruler. But I think I think um there's a seaman on victory who says, uh, you know, we, we are like lions anxious to be at it. They are, they're keyed up for the battle. Even though they know that lots of them are going to die, they yeah. seem to have a kind of battle frenzy. Whereas on, on the, one of the Spanish ships, one of the captains says the fleet is doomed. So there's oh a, God. Yeah. Like, you know, very, uh, yeah. what is it? Um, the guy from dad's army. Yeah. We're doomed, <laughs> doomed. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so Nelson, they have this kind of, they've developed this signaling, which Nelson has been using to kind of convey orders. And they have this famous, um, Nelson wants, England confides that every man will do his duty. This is the message he wants to convey. Confides meaning trust. So England trusts that every man will do his duty, Uh, but they don't have a signal for confides. And so uh, the signal says, could we use expects? Yeah. And so that's the message that goes up. 31 flags it took to... The yeah. signal that message and, and there were conflicting reports but some say you know the men cheer they raise a great cheer when they see this well collingwood collingwood thinks it's all a bit much he complains that you know there are too many signals that they know what to do but then he reads the signal and he welcomes it as well and hurrah yeah ready for battle so slowly 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 the british fleet pronged with you know nelson and collingwood draw closer and closer and closer towards the enemy line and a mile away, the French and Spanish start to fire, and the first shot flies over victory. And Nelson has two captains with him on board. And so he says, you know, chaps, time to go. Off you go. And they head off. And uh, he shakes the hands of one of the captains. And one of the captains takes Nelson's hand and said, I trust my lord that on my return to the victory, which will be as soon as possible, I shall find your lordship well and in possession of 20 prizes on which he, Nelson, made this reply, God bless you, Blackwood. I shall never speak to you again. So, <laughs> yeah. Biographers have had enormous, you know, sp- spent oceans of ink about that remark. Does Nelson feel, you know, uh, the Grim Reaper peering over his shoulder? Does he, or is this what captains, people often say before a battle in which so many people they know will be killed. Yeah. And if they live, it's a remark that will be forgotten. But it lives on yep. purely because he, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Well, so in the Victorian period, where they were very agitated by his relationship with Lady Hamilton, it became part of the myth that he felt ashamed of his relationship with, with Emma and was looking to re-burnish his sense of honour and was offering himself up as a sacrifice. And it is true that Nelson was obsessed with the death of James Wolfe at the Battle of Quebec in the Seven Years' War. Yes. And there was a famous painting by the American painter, Benjamin, Benjamin West. West, who became president of the, the, the Royal Academy, who Nelson had met at, at Font Hill uh, in Wiltshire, where very near where I grew up, and I played cricket there. And Beckford was uh, it, it, it was owned by William Beckford, who was a kind of plant plantation owner, fabulously yeah. dangerously rich sugar baron. Uh, and Nelson met West there and said, "Well, you know, why aren't you painting more 
canvases like uh, like the death of wolf and west says well you know there aren't any heroes and nelson goes hmm <laughs> so, so, but i don't i don't think i mean i think the, the consensus among those who, who who studied nelson is that he had no sense of a death wish i mean he, this was yeah he, he was not looking to sacrifice himself he was not looking to offer himself up as a blood sacrifice to britain or yeah. to uh, to exonerate his shame or anything like that but you know it's it's a tense moment um yeah. and they are going into hell yeah we may it's basically we may we may never meet again isn't it i, I think mean, so yeah Nelson's quite a sentimental person. He says very patriotic and sentimental things. That's how I perceive it. I don't think he's because he yeah. thinks he's going to win. I mean, that's why uh, he's devised the plan. Yeah, I, I mean, he's he's confident he's going to win, but he also knows that that he is going, <clears throat> as I say, going into the jaws of hell. And actually, it's Collingwood rather than Nelson who hits the enemy first because um, the Royal Sovereign, Collingwood's flagship, has just had its hull newly coppered, so it's very very fast gets ahead of victory, gets ahead of the Belle Isle, which is the, the ship directly behind Collingwood. So it is first into the jaws of hell, Yeah, then victory as well. Um, Collingwood is about two miles southeast of the victory, uh, and the, the, the cannon fire is starting to come. However, having said that, I think both Collingwood and Nelson know that it is not perhaps as dangerous as it might be partly because the wind and the tide and the waves are against the enemy. So they're kind of, they're rolling up and down, up and down. Very difficult to get a kind of direct aim. However, I think that neither Collingwood nor Nelson are kind of suicidally brave. And even though the uh, the cannon fire is starting to, you know, smash into the sails, smash into the masts, all kinds of things, cannon fire is whistling past. They know that the uh, the swell is with them. So the swell is is going with them. It's moving them forward, but this is disrupting the ability of the French and Spanish ships to get a kind of steady aim because their ships are kind of rolling up and down, up and down. And that means that basically, it, you know, it's only for a few seconds every minute that the ships are level and therefore the cannon are level. Uh, and so actually the, the fire that is coming from the French and Spanish line is, is pretty irregular and, and, and very inaccurate. And on top of that, one of the technical advances that the British do have is that when they pull the trigger, it fires, whereas the French and Spanish have slow burning fuses. And that makes it even more difficult because if you're lighting a fuse that then has to kind of slow burn and the ship is rocking up and down. I mean, basically, you know, you, it's impossible to target yeah. your fire accurately. Still, I mean, it's not fun, is it? No, even so, the men, the crew are told to, you, you will generally lie flat on the deck if you're under fire, except for... The officers who are uh, not allowed to do that, basically. So they are, you know, standing vertical targets for these hail of, of cannonballs that come sort of. There's an unbelievably moving account from a, 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 a lieutenant on the Belle Isle, which is the ship immediately behind Collingwood's flagship. So, I mean, absolutely in the front. And it, he's what, kind of 19, 20? He wrote after the battle that seeing that almost everyone was lying down, I was half disposed to follow the example and several times stooped for the purpose. But, and I remember the impression well, a certain monitor seemed to whisper, stand up and do not shrink from your duty. Turning round, my much esteemed and gallant senior fixed my attention. The serenity of his countenance and the composure with which he paced the deck drove more than half my terrors away. And joining him, I became somewhat infused with his spirit, which cheered me on to act the part it became me. And so that sense of yeah. being inspired by your senior officers is obviously terribly important. And that's why it's so important for Nelson that he, 
you know, he's prominent on the quarterdeck, and that yes. all appeals from 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 his junior officers to him to you know stop making himself such an obvious target. He absolutely refuses to do it. We talked in the fir- very first episode about the carnage and the horror of a battle like this. There were so many passages that I could have picked from the, the books we read. This is one from Ben Wilson's book, Empire of the Deep. And he says, For thousands of sailors on both sides, the battle was a glimpse into hell. The gun deck turned into a blackened, smoky furnace. Men slipped on the blood and viscera of their messmates as they fought. To continue to man the guns in these conditions required the utmost courage. An officer remarked that the side effects of battle, temporary deafness and the inability to see because of the gun smoke helped because they blotted out the noise and vision of messmates dying. All the men had to keep them sane and grounded was the mechanical rhythm of loading, hauling, firing, hauling, loading over and over and over. But Dominic, I mean, remember, as they're approaching, they're not able to fire because they don't have a target. So they are sitting ducks, basically, aren't they? Until they can finally get to grips with the combined French and Spanish fleets when they finally pierce the line. Yeah, absolutely. And the closer they get, even with the the swell and the the, uh, the slow-burning fuses, the the artillery, the cannon fire starts to to generate casualties. So before Nelson reaches the, uh, the French and Spanish line, his secretary, a man called Dr. Scott, is standing next to him, gets killed by a cannonball. Well, a cannonball that literally rips him in two. Literally, I mean, that, this yes. is the extent of the horror. Yeah. Yes. So it's kind of takes off his body, doesn't it? His kind of yeah. legs are left standing there, and then they collapse. Is that poor Scott gone? Nelson asks, and he gets told <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> and also, the other thing is, it's not just the cannonballs; it's splinters from the wood that are kind of firing everywhere, and a splinter rips off the buckle of Hardy's shoe. It's kind of yeah. an amazing thing. And, um, um, eight Marines get killed on on the, the deck of Victory by a single shot, and Nelson says to Hardy, you know, this is warm work, warm work yeah. to last long. And he knows they've got, you know, they've got to get up close and then they can start the killing. And the ship that first does that is the Royal Sovereign. A Collingwood on the, on the Royal Sovereign closing in on the Santa Anna, which is uh, under the command of, of De Alva commanding the, the, the vanguard. Adam Nicholson describes this brilliant phrase in his book, the cold silence of the approaching British guns. And the only shot that the, uh, the, the Collingwood on the Royal Sovereign aims is a couple to create a kind of smoke screen. Rather, he's still not fired a shot in anger and it glides past the Santa Ana. Collingwood aims right, swings round and it passes under the windows of the stern of the Santa Ana. And now the Santa Ana is absolutely at its most vulnerable and Collingwood can rake the Santa Ana, yeah. and is able to rake it basically for about a minute as it so drifts past. a minute past. of just constant yes. help coming from the guns of the British ship, just ripping through the, the Santa yeah. Ana, basically. Because as I said, if you're, if you're aiming at the ribs of a ship, the side of a ship, you can't get through. But if you're aiming at the, it's kind of like a kind of soft, it's open. Yeah. You can aim artillery fire and it will go through all the decks right the way to the front of the ship. And so that minute that the Royal Sovereign is drifting past the, the, um, uh, the stern of the Santa Ana, 240 of a crew of 800 are killed in the space of a minute. Yeah. And, and that is the impact of kind of close impact gunnery. That is the, 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 the condition of chaos that Nelson has wanted to create. I mean, imagine the scene, Tom, the, the smoke, the, I mean, literally 
people's heads, body parts flying through the air, splinters. I mean, splinters would kill an enormous number of people, wouldn't they? Is that just awful? Awful. It's absolute, it's absolute chaos, absolute carnage. Obviously, the moment that, um, that the royal sovereign has drifted past, more and more French and Spanish ships are kind of coming up, like, like, I suppose, like kind of bees in a, 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 a hive that's been disturbed. They're firing muzzle to muzzle, hugely playing to the British advantage. I mean, the Brit, you know, lots and lots of British sailors are dying, but they're losing maybe 25%. The French and Spanish are losing 50%. Yeah. And that's the margin of victory. Well, this is an interesting thing because this is the, that Nelson knew, and the whole strategy was based on the fact that the British were the British gunnery was quicker, more effective, more efficient. So they know that as many as they are losing, if they're still firing, they will inflict more damage on the enemy than the enemy can ever possibly inflict yeah. on them. So essentially, they, they, those British casualties are the payment for the opportunity to force the surrender. So by quarter past two in the afternoon, Santa Ana has surrendered. Yeah. So that. The strategy is bloody, it's brutal, it costs a lot of British lives, it costs even more lives, French and Spanish lives, but as far as the British are concerned, it works. Meanwhile, the head of the other line, Victory, has reached has reached the enemy. It aims first at the Santissima Trinidad, the largest ship in the world, with its four yeah. decks, and then for the Busantor, Villeneuve's flagship, with the eagle that has been given to it by Napoleon. It, again, it rakes the, uh, the Busantor's stern, just as Collingwood had done, Nelson kills hundreds within that kind of, you know, that minute of concentrated lethal fire. Victory itself gets raked through its brow. Uh, and that's the moment that, that kills more people on board Victory than any other. That's by the French ship Neptune or Spanish that's ship. That's right. French yes. ship Neptune, yeah. 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 A, a ship called the Redoutable. Yes. Um, commanded by very, very um, brave, tough uh, captain called Jean-Jacques Lucas. Uh, blocks off Victory's passage. So uh, Victory is essentially stationary. And there's a kind of a a piece of of, um, iron that gets caught and essentially solders Victory and Redoutable together uh, so that the guns are just kind of firing away because otherwise the the, the force of the blast would have propelled Victory away from Redoutable, but it doesn't. And this essentially is what dooms Nelson. Yeah because Luca and his men are desperate to, to board victory. But even though they can't do that, they, they're absolutely packed with, with musket men. And Luca, recognising that, that he can never outgun the British gunners, he, he locks up the, the portholes so that it gets harder for the British uh, cannonballs to get through and relies on his muskets, his musketry, his soldiers. And that means a lot of, a lot of, cannonball, a lot of uh, musket balls firing. Yes. And 115... In the afternoon, yeah. probably. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you'd say that the arrow that killed King Harold at Hastings is the most famous shot fired in British history. But this is up there. This though, is certainly it? up there, isn't it? Probably yeah. first equal. The shot is fired that that hits Nelson, and he falls on his left side, right into the the blood where John Scott had been killed, and, and he gets drenched, drenched in Scott's blood. Yeah. Yes. So the decks are covered in sand to soak up the blood. And it's a measure of how much, you know, just how much carnage had been left by the, the destruction of Scott's upper body. The blood drenches Nelson and he cries out, they've done for me at last. And Hardy, who's standing next to him, says, I hope not. And Nelson says, yes, my backbone is shot through. So he's fallen. Um, he's been, the, the, the musket ball has hit him in his left shoulder, gone through the epaulette, and it's picked up fragments of 
fabric as it passes. Yeah. And it goes down through his chest, severs an artery, I think round about his lung, and then lodges. It smacks into his backbone and lodges in his spine. And the force of it knocks him down onto his knees and men cluster around him. Take him below deck. And, uh, yeah, so they, they realize he's got to go below deck straight away to the surgeon's cockpit. Four of them take him down the ladders. I mean, just uh, imagine how unbelievably agonizing that must have been. Well, and to so, be carried so Nelson, down these ladders. And Nelson, of course, had lost his arm. It had been operated on. And one of the things that he specified before Trafalgar is fought is that the surgeons below deck should warm up their knives because he remembered the chill of the iron. Yeah. So, Tom, I think we should take a break on this at this climactic moment and then come back after the break to talk about what happens to Nelson and what happens um, in the battle. In the battle. Yeah. So we'll see you in a couple of minutes. So welcome back to The Rest is History for this final concluding part of our Trafalgar epic. And Tom, uh, before the break, uh, Nelson was hit by a sniper from Radio Table. Nelson has been taken below decks uh, to the surgeon, Dr. Beatty. But meanwhile, the Battle of Trafalgar is raging. And it is clear, I think, at this point that Nelson's plan is working. Yes, because it's ironically because everything is totally unclear. No one really has any idea what's going on. It's absolute carnage. Ships are all p- kind of piling into it, what one onto one another. But this is playing to British strengths, and they just devastate the uh, the, the, the French and Spanish ships. More and more carnage. Um, ships smeared with blood. Um, you know, sloshing all over. I mean, literally sloshing over the over the decks. Just unspeakable, and. By 1.40, so that's what, that's almost half an hour after Nelson has been shot on the deck of victory, uh, Villeneuve on the Boussentour surrenders. And before he surrenders, he makes sure that the eagle that has been given him by Napoleon is is thrown overboard. Um, and an hour after Nelson is shot, victory sl- at last drifts away from Redoutable. So Redoutable, to give you a sense of the carnage, Redoutable had a crew of 643 men. And 300 of those men are killed, and 222 of them are wounded, and many of those wounds are pretty severe. So that gives you a – I mean, basically, the vast majority of the men on that ship are either killed or very, very badly injured. I mean, you just – the horror of fighting at sea is is so often, I think, underestimated. Well, that's – and that's the brutal reality of Nelson's ambition, to, to fight a war of annihilation. Yeah. Um, you know, I consider the destruction of the enemy's fleet of so much consequence that I would willingly have half of mine burnt to affect their destruction. And, and it works. That's because, the bargain that he's made. Yeah. You look at the stats, you look at the figures. So of Nelson's men, 460 of them or so were killed and about 1,200 injured. But of the French and Spanish, of those killed, wounded, or captured, the total is 14,000. Yeah. So that that you know that is a testament. I mean, everything we talked about, particularly in episode one, about the the efficiency, the ruthless efficiency of the Royal Navy as a killing machine. I mean, Trafalgar is the ultimate testament to that, isn't it? Because they yeah. they go straight into the battle, as you said, muzzle to muzzle, and it's the British who emerge by a, a gigantic margin. Ten, t- I mean, ten times 
the, the French and Spanish lose 10 times yeah. the, the, the British losses. But of course, among the British losses um, is probably the most famous man in Britain, Horatio Nelson himself. And even as um, the, the Boussantour and other ships, uh, French and Spanish ships are surrendering, Nelson can feel, he can feel that he's, he's, he's paralyzed. He's seen what happens when someone gets shot in the spine. He's witnessed it for himself. He knows what's happening to him. The doctors try and cheer him up and say, oh, you'll be all right, my Lord. But he says, no, no, no. And of course, you know, he's lost control over his bodily functions. So he's urinating, shitting, mm-hmm. um, bleeding. Well, he's, he says to the doctor straight away, Dr. Beatty, I mean, this is classic Nelson. He says, ah, Mr. Beatty, you can do nothing for me. I have but a short time to live. My back is shot through. And he says to Beatty, don't worry about me. Look after your other patients. And then he says constantly, Doctor, I'm gone, I'm gone. And he starts saying, remember me to Lady Hamilton. I have made a will. I have left Lady Hamilton and Horatia to my country. I mean, this line is, you know, it's a sort of obsession for him that uh, Emma Hamilton and their daughter will not be looked after. And it's about, I think, 2.30 that Captain Hardy, who is, you you described Hardy, Tom, earlier on. I mean, Hardy is a, is a huge man, isn't he? Six foot yes, four bald, or something. He's balding, stooping. yeah. Yeah, very, very kind of striking figure, very stern disciplinarian, but devastated by, I mean, loves, adores Nelson uh, yes. and, and is absolutely devastated to, to see him dying um, and come down to stay with Nelson about 3.30. So that's what, that's mm-hmm. uh, just over a couple of hours after he's been shot. So Nelson um, takes quite a, for someone who's so badly injured, Tom, what strike, struck me about this was I had, before I read up on it, I had this sort of vague idea that Nelson is shot, he's taken downstairs, and then he dies. No, it's very protracted. It's very protracted. So he's in agony for for hours, asking for lemonade or asking to be fanned, give, being given wine, constantly saying, you know, I, I have. He, he says again and again, I leave Lady Hamilton and Horatia to my So that's country. one obsession. And the other obsession, of course, is how is the battle going? So yeah. when Hardy comes down, he's saying, um, you know, how goes the battle? How goes the day with us? And Hardy's able to say, well, we've got about 12 or 14 of the enemy's ships. Um, and Nelson's anxious that, you know, have the British lost any ships and says no. Um, and so, so he has that to, he has that but to also keep him going. That, but you talked about Nelson and his attention to detail, his perfectionism. At one point later on, when, when Hardy comes down, you know, the second time, isn't it? Yeah. But when he comes down and he says, how many? And uh, Hardy says, he, very emotionally, you know, he knows the gravity of the moment. He says, you have won a complete victory. I'm certain that it's 14 or 15 of the enemy ships have surrendered. Now, we talked about the Battle of the Nile. How many ships had they'd sunk then? They'd sunk, sunk two. about two. Yeah. So this is a, a, a titanic, Unprecedented. unbelievable victory. And Nelson says, that is well, but I bargained for 20. <laughs> you know, that sort of drive, even at the last. Um, yeah. And then, of yeah. course, he says, take care of poor date poor lady hamilton and then there was this thing that you know schoolboys for generations in britain have giggled about where he says kiss me hardy um and so hardy leans forward and kisses him on the cheek and tom do you know the story about oberon war i know this is a slight um uh no you know, this Ob- is an unexpected no, turn it is so even war son uh son of even war the novelist he's was well known particularly well known in britain late 20th century great satirist writer for private eye oberon war did his national service and uh, I think he was fiddling with a gun in Cyprus or something, and the gun went off, and, and and a burst of sort of machine gun fire or something went into him. 
And he was convinced he was dying. He's kind of lies on the ground, blood seeping out of him. And Oberon Wall was a man steeped, you know, he'd read lots of history books. And he said to his second in command or whatever, kiss me, Chudley. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this bloke just stared at him. But unfortunately, Oberon Wall then lived. <laughs> and he said that from that point onwards, Chudley would always look at him with some suspicion. <laughs> he looked at him with deep, deep suspicion because they didn't get the reference. Anyway, so. But Hardy, Hardy actually kisses Nelson twice, doesn't he? He, he does kiss so him He kisses twice. him on the cheek and then um, he kisses him on the forehead. And Nelson, by this point, is so far gone that he doesn't know who it is. And he, he yeah. asks who it is and it is Hardy. God bless you, Hardy. Oh, I'm mean, so moving. God bless the you, idea, Hardy. I mean, of course, like all other nine-year-olds, when I came across this in my school textbook, we all sort of giggled and said, golly, kiss me, Hardy. What's going on there? But, um, you know, to read these descriptions now and the accounts of Trafalgar, it's it's incredibly moving. Um, and then Nelson, in absolute, I mean, he always has this Hollywood quality. Yeah, he and really it, does. In, at four, it's about 4.30, he's dying. And his last word, I mean, there are different accounts, he either says thank God I have done my duty, which he has said again and again. Or some people, some witnesses said his last words were, God and my country. But both of them I mean, are box office, aren't they? I, I'm determined that they will be my last words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope someone is on hand to, yeah, to, to, to record, record them for, for you. Posterity. And so, that's, yes. and that's about, so that's about 4.30, by which point it's, it's very, you know, Nelson dies knowing that he has won the battle. Uh, all kinds of great prizes have been taken. Um, including the uh, the Santissima Trinidad, uh, a h- horrific uh, description of um, of the boarding party. So the, uh, there's um, a ship, the Africa, that thinks that uh, the Santissima Trinidad has has surrendered. Boarding party goes on, and a midshipman, um, British midshipman, describes it. She had between three and four hundred killed and wounded. Her beams were covered with blood, brains, and pieces of flesh, and the after part of her decks with wounded, some without legs and some without an arm. What calamities war brings on? Um, because the, the British, unless you're Nelson, the casualties get thrown overboard. The French and Spanish don't. They, they, they leave yeah. them there. Um, but the, the <laughs> it turns out when the boarding party land on the, um, the Santissima Trinidad that um, actually they haven't surrendered. Um, that they were just taking a, a, a breather. A break. And the, um, the, uh, the, the lieutenant who's led the boarding party apologizes and, and he withdraws and it's all very, very good behavior. Um, but oh, it, it's all, it's basically it's just bravado. It's, it's bravado yeah. because there's, you know, there's nothing the Santissimo Trinidad can done. Uh, and in due course that get, it gets captured, um, and, uh, taken in tow with uh, with her great cargo of dead um so basically all the um the french and spanish ships either get sunk or most of them get uh, get get captured the only ones that don't are the uh, the um the ships under dumanois who is in command of the rear guard right yes uh, and he he doesn't engage and um it's unclear why he doesn't um some said it was cowardice some said that it was uh, you know he wanted to to preserve something of the ship, and the only the only ship that does uh, from his uh, rear guard is um, uh, a ship commanded by an, um, a French captain with the splendid name of Louis Affernet, who commands the Intrepide, uh, plunges into the heart of battle, right? Uh, fights with absolutely suicidal bravery, and when the the crew, you know, I mean, there's, they're all kind of dead or dying, and they finally agree to surrender. Affernet is so furious that they're they're surrendering that he has to be held down. Um, and the British are unbelievably impressed by this. 
and say that it deserves to be recorded in the memory of those who admire true heroism. And actually, the, the, the British are very, very impressed with how bravely the French and Spanish have fought. They're surprised, aren't they? Because they thought yeah, they surprised. slightly underestimated the French yeah, and they Spanish, did. I think it's fair to say. But the victory is total, and um, it's marked at 5.30, so an hour after Nelson has died, when one of the French ships literally explodes. Um, That's the, yeah. And that is the end of you know the battle, five and a half hours. And it is, well, it's an absolutely thumping victory. Yes, it is. So the, the, the previous record for, uh, you know, a naval battle was, was the one that Nelson had got at the Nile. You mentioned that. Yeah. Which was seven captured and four destroyed. Um, and uh, the British have taken 12 ships as prizes and one has blown up. And also they take uh, over 11,000 prisoners. Um, as it turns out, the... So, so two things yeah. slightly cast a shadow on, on the victory at Trafalgar. One, of course, is the death of Nelson. The other is the fact that this swell that people had noticed um, in the, uh, the early hours of the battle um, it, it does indeed presage a storm. And this absolutely you know, hits uh, the, the, the Bay of Cadiz the, and, and Trafalgar and down to Gibraltar, causes absolute chaos. Lots of the, um, the prizes are sunk. One of the things that's actually very, very impressive and the British behave very well is that rather than just abandoning the, the French and Spanish prisoners on these ships, they risk their lives to save them. Um, there's no example of British sailors uh, abandoning the, uh, their, their prisoners to their fate. Um, and it's thought that maybe it's thought that perhaps 2000 drown in the, uh, in the storm. Um, oh. They rescue uh, from the Santissima Trinidad, they rescue a, a dog, a pug. So, Collingwood would have approved of that with his love of dogs. Um, and they end up only man- actually only saving four prizes. And this, of course, is very bad news for, um, for everyone in the fleet because prizes, what do prizes mean? Prizes mean cash. Yes. Yeah, they do. They absolutely do. If you've ever read the Patrick O'Brien books, you know that they, they, they're obsessed with That's prices. what they're after. Yeah. So Parliament recognises this and actually coughs up money to try and make up the, the shortfall. Oh, that's good. That's um, good form. That's unusually yeah. good political form. Yes, so good behaviour from the British sailors in the aftermath of the battle, mm-hmm. and good behaviour from from, uh, from um, Parliament. So you were talking about the shadow. So the news doesn't reach England until I think about the 5th, 6th of November. Um, and what's remarkable is is that this crushing victory, this victory which really you could argue, you could argue, I mean, we'll come to the significance of the battle in just a second, but you could argue it's decisive, not merely in the Napoleonic Wars, but in the course of the entire 19th century. People greet it with... I mean, they're as they're as struck by the tragedy of the death of Nelson as they are by the glory of the of the triumph. So Pitt, um, William Pitt the younger, he uh, can't sleep when he's told um, he's told about the about the victory. He gets up at three o'clock in the morning because he can't he can't sleep. He's so upset about the death of Nelson. The king um, sits in silence, you know, unable to speak. Not not because of for once not because of madness, but because of grief. <laughs> going to say because um, of grief about Nelson's death. Uh, when people gather at the Admiralty buildings for news, they they hear the news and they stand there in a sort of a somber, broken silence because Nelson was such a hero to them. And then Nelson's body, when it's finally brought back, so Nelson's body had been kept in a barrel with spirits, a cask of brandy, yeah, isn't it? Brandy yeah. and then replaced with wine. I think with a Gibraltar. Yeah. Um, 
and he's he he lies in state in Greenwich in the Painted Hall. If anyone hasn't been to the Painted Hall in Greenwich, it is the most extraordinary building. I mean, the magnificence and of the navy is sort of embodied, isn't it, in the the complex great complex at Greenwich. And then he has a state funeral at that point, the biggest state funeral in history. And it's not in Westminster Abbey. In St. Paul's. Which, yeah. It's in St. Paul's. And it's kind of, and he, he's buried in, is it Cardinal Wolsey's it is. coffin? A yes. coffin built for Cardinal Wolsey. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's a massive scene and there's all kinds of stuff with uh, men from the victory ripping up flags or, you know, yeah. um, sort of very moving. Well, so this is an age when Britain is is notorious for being absolutely hopeless at state funerals and you know, pomp. Yeah. So anyone who who watched the Queen's funeral may be surprised to know that Britain was a byword for uselessness at this kind of thing. <laughs> but Nelson, they really pull the stops out and it's it's a great success. Um, and you know who's there at the funeral? Is uh, poor old Villeneuve. Oh no. He's been, he's been taken back. He's been, he's been put, sent to Reading. Right. As, and then, as punishment. <laughs> <laughs> he's kept there as a prisoner. And, um, and then he, he has to attend the the funeral and then poor man he, he he gets sent back to france um in uh, 1806 um and it's clearly not going to end well with him and he he's found dead and there's much debate as to whether he is murdered or commits suicide he would have been better off staying in reading tom would have been. i say that phrase yes he would um <laughs> but 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 interesting there's absolutely no mention of trafalgar whatsoever in uh, in the french press Le Moniteur, that, the, they don't even the, mention it not mention. Oh dear. Not mention. The uh, so the naval campaign has worked out not necessarily to our advantage. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't say a word. So the the significance of it. So there is a case which has be, been made by lots of historians of the Napoleonic Wars that actually it's it, it changes nothing. Yeah. That in eighteen oh six there are two squadrons from Brest that go out. Uh, that over the course of the decade that follows, Napoleon is is endlessly building new ships. Um, I think by 1814, he has another about 100 ships uh, that nothing really changes. I think the significance is absolutely enormous. I mean, those two squadrons from Brest get finished off very rapidly. Um, Napoleon is reduced basically to trying to grab ships off other powers. So that's the second battle of Copenhagen. Yeah. Uh, when the, the British go in and, and grab the, uh, the, the Danish ships. And there's a case for saying, isn't there, that um, the ambition to... Uh, essentially reconstruct a navy distorts napoleon's entire geopolitical strategy it's what leads him to you know turn on spain his ally at trafalgar and to invade it and that becomes the disaster of the peninsular war and in the long run it kind of leads him to to invade russia it does because what happens is that the royal navy can now enforce a blockade of europe um, unchallenged by a french and spanish fleet uh, Napoleon has this idea of the continental system to try and keep the, um, the British out of Europe, to keep British imports out and so on. But effectively, over the years, the Navy has this blockade of, of the continent. Um, it takes the, it, it seizes the merchant marine trade of most, most of Europe, dominates the coast, dominates commerce. Um, so Napoleon's empire, which is a continental empire, is gradually being squeezed. In his insistence on dragging other European powers into his system, he turns on Russia. You know, that's what he want. That's the casus belli to some extent. Uh, he wanted the Russians to close their ports to British ships, and they wouldn't do it. The campaign of 1812, 
you know, all of this flows from, to some extent, from um, that defeat in 1805. And as you said beforehand, what 1805 also does is it means that when the war is over, Britain has all its colonies, it has control of the sea lanes, it has control of the merchant marine, it has control of international commerce, and it is it is it is supremely well placed to benefit from the in the years of peace and to build up its kind of an imperial commercial supremacy. So I think all of that arguably And of course and of course one should say uh, that you know at Trafalgar there were three different types of society. There's the Ancien Regime of Spain. There was the the revolutionary um, republic of France, yeah. and there was the kind of um, constitutional monarchy of the industrial yeah. uh, oh, bourgeois see, yes. yeah. constitutional yeah. monarchy of yeah. Britain. But 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 essentially, the, the the frameworks that will underpin global industrialization and capitalism are laid, you could argue, in the decades that follow Trafalgar. Mm-hmm. As a result of British control of the shipping lanes, yeah, and of course, also it's you know it's not just about the 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 establishment of imperialism and of industrial capitalism, but also say the the abolition of the slave trade would have been impossible for the navy to enforce yeah. had they not had domination of the seas. Well, so here's so, the thing about Trafalgar. I would say, I'd say on the one hand, it's the victory of British modernity. So it's the victory of of a, a hugely disciplined navy of gun crews who have been trained and trained and all of that takes money and it takes, it's a victory of bureaucracy that it's the victory of, of Pitt and his finance and taxation and, and, and a system of government borrowing and, and all of those things. It's the victory of an increasingly industrialized kind of financialized society. And yet, as you said, and I think you're absolutely right. It's also a, um, a story that belongs with the kind of Homeric legends because yeah. of Nelson dying in the moment of victory, and th- this figure who had always seen himself, as you said, as the kind of what did you call him, the Christian Achilles, the Christian Achilles. Yes, yeah. is that your own phrase, Tom? That's my own phrase. Yes, very I nice. Myself. Yeah, I like that. I think. I mean, so I, I, I think that Trafalgar really. I mean, is is the making of British imperialism in the nineteenth century, and obviously attitudes to to British, the attitudes I would have to that story. Are more nuanced than when I read about the Battle of Trafalgar when I was, you know, ten, right, and and more complicated, and more ambivalent perhaps. But I still cannot help but thrill at the drama and the epic quality of the courage on display at Trafalgar, yeah. I, and and that's how I mean it being epic, rather in the way that I do to Achilles, even though he's killing lots of people. There is a kind of the quality of heroism I do find stirring, and oddly. That there are people in Britain who the the sense of of kind of revulsion at perhaps the, the ferocity of what Nelson represents isn't a purely twenty first century phenomenon. Uh, it is there in the 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 the, the radical um, counterculture in Regency London. So William Blake would be a, would be an obvious spokesman for them. So he 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 did a painting in eighteen oh nine. Which he's, he he describes it, that it's Nelson guiding Leviathan, in whose wreathings are enfolded the nations of the earth. So that's that's a kind of very, perhaps you know, twenty first century response to yeah. what Trafalgar yeah. is about. But I'm with with Wordsworth, who who before Trafalgar, but he's 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 I think he's think he's got Nelson in his mind. He's probably got the Battle of the Nile in his mind. 
in a poem called Home at Grasmere, he wrote, I cannot at this moment read a tale of two brave vessels matched in deadly fight and fighting to the death, but I am pleased more than a wise man ought to be. I wish I burn, I struggle, and in soul am there. Now, I would nothing would make me want to be at the Battle of Trafalgar, but I do read it and I feel a sense of the drama and the power of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember I, I mentioned a few times John, John Sugden's brilliant biography and the last line that I wrote when I reviewed that for the newspapers, I said it was a tribute to his achievement that as Nelson lies stricken below decks, gasping for air, blood pouring into his chest, his officers biting back the tears and Hardy wringing his hand, you pray that somehow against all sense and reason, England's greatest hero might just pull through. And I think you do feel that reading the um, accounts yeah. of the battle. Yeah, I felt that even yeah. now, that is this tremendous story. He's an absolutely extraordinary character, that charisma, the concern for his men, the the, the dash, the vigor, the self-belief. Um, and it, and it does feel, I may use the word Hollywood. I mean, it does feel like a Hollywood ending dying in the moment of triumph. Well, I mean, he is up there with Bo Brummel and Byron as a kind of proto film star. I mean, he is, he is a, a media celebrity as well as everything else. But I mean, he, he is so much more than that. And, um, Andrew Lambert, who wrote another biography of, of, uh, of Nelson, his summary was Nelson met and defeated the greatest challenge to the independence and prosperity of his country through his genius for war, moral and political courage, and willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice. Um, and I, you know, I think it's worth paying tribute to those qualities, no matter how shaded by ambivalence the I'm not ambivalent. The consequences Are you may ambivalent? Have been. I'm not ambivalent. Yeah, to a degree. To a degree. Oh, yeah. This is this is the difference between Chipping North well, and South Well, Dominic, London, you are, you are doing it. You're doing your children's, your series of children's books, aren't you? Yeah. Adventures in Time. Yeah. Um, and uh, perfect opportunity to tell the story of Nelson for a yes. young generation of patriots. And who are you doing it on? Well, I'm going to be, okay, fine. Listen, you're going to do Napoleon. I'm going to do why Napoleon. Do you hate, why do you hate Britain? But Nelson will be in it, Tom. Napoleon is the villain. Napoleon is the villain of that Nelson. Book. Come on. I think you should rip your plans up and do it on Nelson. There's too much Lady Hamilton, I, I would say. I don't think they, I don't think the young readers will have much tolerance for that kind of carry on. They'll just they say, love it. That they will want more fighting. Anyway, listen, with, with this is this is a, an incredibly pathetic ending. I think. Well, no, I'm calling on I'm calling yeah. on you for it, the good of the nation. Well, Tom, you've to, missed a trick. Edu- Surely, what you should to, be saying is England expects. I expect. Dominic. Yes, I expect. So, Horatio Nelson. I think we can safely say. A friend of the rest is history, a very close well, friend. Well, I think, and I think we'll come back to him because we've looked at how he died. We've yeah. looked at the last year of his life, but I think that, that the entire course of his career is so dramatic and extraordinary. And given that Tom that, managed um, to compile 7,000 pages of notes on the Battle of Trafalgar, <laughs> I dread to think what he'll come up with for Nelson. So listen, thank you very much for sticking with us through all this. Tom, dare I say it has been a tour de force and your, your desire to do multiple episodes on the Battle of Trafalgar has been triumphantly vindicated. So I hope you're, I hope you're satisfied. Well, what I would like to say is that uh, those of you who are members of the Rest of History Club are very, very happy Trafalgar Day. Um, those of you who aren't, um, I hope you had a good Trafalgar Day on Friday. And uh, I raise a toast to the glorious memory. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, 
early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.